Join Anthony Esselin, John Wark Montgomery, Beverly Yonke, Mark Haltoff, Ryan Anderson, Todd Wilkin, and yours truly for the Fall 2018 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, November 9th and Saturday, November 10th in Dallas, Texas. To learn more, register at issuesetc.org. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, August 29th, 2018. Switch it up a little bit for our light episode today. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that is put forward for consumption by the average evangelical, it's not what God's Word says like at all. It's just getting weirder and weirder, best way I can put it. Now, one of the things that comes up very often are you know people who call themselves Christians who completely capitulate to the false narrative put forward by Darwin as it relates to the origin of humanity, the universe, and the different animals and things like that. And yeah, Darwin's false narrative is not scientifically verified at all. Nope. In fact, you're sitting there going, well, Rose, bro, you're just a pastor. You know, you don't know nothing about science. Funny that you would say that. I was originally trained as a Christian apologist, and the man who taught me apologetics as it relates to uh, you know, uh, Darwinian evolution and things like that was the late Dr. A.E. Wilder Smith. This is the man who taught me how to properly understand where, what the role of science was and when science crosses its boundaries into the world of philosophy and speculation and things like that. And this is a man who was a world-renowned uh, a scientist with multiple PhDs, best way I could put it. In fact, his book, if you haven't read it, it's well worth the read. It's a little bit on the um, uh, you know, very elaborate side. The, the name of the book is titled, The Natural Sciences Know Nothing of Evolution. Now, A.E. Wildersmith has now gone to be with Christ. However, um, you know, way back I played some of the lectures that I had of his that were available at the time 
online. I've since found some more of them, and it's worth listening to because this guy's science is spot on. And uh, when he was alive, evolutionists would not debate him. It got to the point where it was so embarrassing well, you know, what would happen if they debated A.E. Wilder-Smith. They just as a whole lot decided they will not debate this man. So today we're going to be listening to a lesson, a lecture titled The Origin of Life by the late Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith. We'll spend a couple of weeks kind of working our way through a few of his uh, lectures because good primer – Good primer on, uh, you know, on understanding that <laughs> science <laughs> has not proven that we've uh, evolved from grandma and grandpa ape that came about as a result of amoebas and things like that. So here's the late A.E. Wilder Smith and his lecture titled The Origin of Life. I want to talk tonight about the origin of life. So what we want to look at is the nature of life, first of all. What does it do? Uh, and when we know that, we can go into then the possible origins of it. Now, life is a hierarchy, life as we know it, biological life, is a hierarchy of atoms and molecules which are so set up that they gain energy from the environment. The whole of uh, a biological cell and the whole of a biological multicellular organism is a machine to get energy out of the environment uh, which it then uses for its own purposes. Or we may say, what does a cell or an organism need energy for? Well, in the first place, it needs energy, if it's an animal, for movement. But some plants, you know, move too. Particularly those that catch flies, uh, sundews and things like that, and flycatchers, they're quite complicated pieces of apparatus for catching the unwary fly or other insect. So you've got, first of all, to finance movement. And all cells, if you look at them under the microscope, are inside in pretty active movement. Now, it's no good to say, well, the movement just happens, because movement requires energy to finance it. If you don't move a lot, uh, then you don't finance the movement with much energy, and the result is you get wider and wider and uh, broader and broader and heavier and heavier at the hips, because you don't move enough. Now, the movement's got to be financed. Where does the cell get it from? And then the second thing that all cells need, particularly animal cells, but plant cells as well, is to raise the temperature. You know that the growing points of some plants are a good deal warmer than the environment, two or three degrees often. And you can see that, uh, you know, when all the rest is frost round about the plant, where the growing tip is, there's no frost because it develops warmth. Now, the warmth has to be financed. Now, the other things that have to be financed in the higher animals is, of course, the computer technique that's in the higher animals. If you think of, say, a bat, uh, it sees 
with its ears and it can fly in networks of wires, steel wires, in perfect darkness without touching them. It does that by uh, a network system of computer working on echolocation, sonar location, which you know about. Now all computers draw energy, don't they? And uh, our computer is uh, no exception. Uh, a whale will, uh, has in its uh, brain a system for uh, echolocation and it can use that to navigate with, but it also uses a system of uh, magnetic field compasses which work on the magnetic north pole and on the magnetic dip that you get on the needle to get the, the latitude. Now that sort of system requires highly, uh, highly complex computer work. A BATS system flying as it does in the dark uh, needs an exceedingly efficient computer system and that needs energy to finance it. And uh, the uh, brain of the human takes a good deal more blood than some other organs in the human body and the oxygen and the warmth and the hemoglobin which comes up to the brain is uh, to supply a quite a large amount of energy to supply the computer uh, activity of the human brain. Now there's one other thing which I've got to say about that, that is that consciousness has to be financed too. We don't know, nobody knows what consciousness is. It's uh, self-reflection, reflection turned on oneself to a high degree. You might say that, that's okay. But it needs financing and is always coupled to a computer system which works on the five senses, all requiring energy to uh, finance and keep going. So keep this in mind. All biology is like that. If you go down to uh, Australia, we hope to be there in about six weeks' time, and go and have a look at the Ornithorhynchus platypus. Now you all know what the Ornithorhynchus platypus is, don't you? Such a learned audience such as we have here tonight. That's the duckbill platypus, which is a mammal, or a marsupial if you like, which lays eggs and uh, swims about in the eastern rivers behind uh, Brisbane in Eastern Australia. That animal has a highly sophisticated system in its, what you might call, beak, because it has a sort of a duck's beak, which will locate underwater when its eyes are firmly closed and its nostrils are firmly closed. It can locate in just a jiffy any crab or crayfish which happens to be in the neighborhood and it does it by receiving and locating directionally where these little things lie in the mud by the electrical currents in them. Now that's a highly sophisticated instrument which needs financing with energy. So you see, all life must have energy to uh, 
put at the disposal of the various pieces of instrumentation which uh, uh, it carries with it around. That's the first thing for sources which all demand energy from the cell. Now I want you to get this perfectly clear. All of these uh, instruments uh, which the animal uses to produce temperature and to produce echolocation or to produce electronic location, all of them require energy. Now that means that they're machines, they're instruments. The duck-billed platypus has in its bill this marvelous little instrument for locating uh, electrical currents of micro, 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 mini volts in crabs which are doing their afternoon's thinking. And as soon as they start to think, there are electrical eddies set up which these animals can locate a yard away. Now the sophistication of these instruments is very great. And the result is you shouldn't think of an animal, say like the Ornithorhynchus platypus, as being primitive. They're in their ways highly sophisticated and demanding in the way of energy. Now keep that in your mind. This is a machine problem to supply energy to instruments and to supply warmth where warmth and to supply movement where movement is necessary. Now, where does it get? Where does all biology get its uh, energy from? Well, I don't need to ask a learned audience like yourself. Gets it from its food. Now, would you put the first one on there, Adam, if you'd be so kind? I've just put a little sketch up of, uh, just to help you, uh, perhaps you turn the lights down. Would somebody do that so that we can see these a bit better? Uh, I'm sorry, I had these prepared when I was in Switzerland, and they don't speak English very well, but uh, this is in, uh, in German. I'll just do the translation thing. Up the top, you've got two... Uh, uh, rectangles, well they're not rectangles, they're uh, you know oblongs, but uh, at the front there there's a key and it's a keyhole and at the side there I've put calories. Each molecule of food has inside some energy locked up like say gold in the safe you have down in your cellar at home. You know, you take your wages home for two or three years in gold and you've got to put it somewhere. And uh, all food is like a safe and it has energy, calories, within it. The thing is this, if you've got a safe, how are you going to get the gold out? The uh, calories are not easy to get out of food. Well, you can do it as Dad does when he cooks the bacon and eggs in the morning and uh, you can let the whole frying pan get on fire and that's one way of getting the calories out. But the smoke isn't, isn't appreciated by the ladies in general because it sticks in the furniture. Um, so what I put here, Schlüssel, Schloss. Schlüssel means a key. And Schloss means uh, a lock padlock if you like. So you've got a key and a lock mechanism to get at the 
energy in the molecules of food. Now, if the energy in the molecule of food uh, is to be got out, there are two ways of doing it. One I've already mentioned about Dad when he gets at the pan, uh, frying pan in the morning to make his breakfast, and the whole lot catches fire. If you blow a safe, which can be done, the uh, thing is that uh, if the police catch you at it, they'll sure and surely put a heavy hand on your shoulder. Uh, because it's not the usual way of getting the contents of a safe out. The proper way to get the contents of a safe out, the calories or the gold from a real safe, uh, the proper way to do it is put the key in the lock and turn it and open it. And everything in the garden is beautiful. So the all biology has the key to open all the molecules of food with which it comes into contact in its environment so that it can get out the energy. That is, it has the master keys for all the types of energy, uh, all the types of molecule which contain the energy at once. Now, the key works in biology just as it does in uh, forensic medicine. It has a profile on it and the profile is non-chaotic. The profile has a system in it and you can have a key which will open a series of locks. If you get the profile just right, it'll let the tumblers fall and the expert safe breaker will hear those tumblers fall and he know just how to twiddle his little key just to open those locks that he's trying to open with his key that doesn't quite fit. Uh, we had an experience once down in the uh, Everglades. They uh, wanted to give us a, a great surprise and a treat when we were down there two years ago. So they hired a plane, uh, a Cessna, a little, no, it was a Cessna or a Piper, one of the two, and I think it was a Cessna. Anyway, uh, and this plane was piloted by a biologist who knew all about the the uh, Everglade uh, biology and so he took us up in this little plane and uh, showed us everything from the air and it's wonderful to see there now what I was going to use this for is quite simple when we got to uh, Homestead uh, the dear biologist was like most absent-minded professors he forgot his key but he pulled out his hotel key, because it was a yellow one, just like the plane key was. And uh, when he put his hotel key in the ignition switch, things didn't fit. Uh, so we went into the little hut on Homestead and uh, asked if they got any more Cessna keys about. Well, they had a whole row of Cessna keys. So we took them all, put them in our pockets, and sat ourselves down in the cockpit and took out the most likely, custom, likely customers of the keys. And you know, one did fit. It went in, but you couldn't turn it. So we knew we were on the right track. If it went in, you were getting somewhere, getting warm, you see. So we sat there and fiddled with this key for about half an hour, and suddenly uh, it turned quite easily. And the starter motor went, 
and the engine sprang into life. Well now, I thought now, if it suddenly stops again while we're taking off, that'll be rather, that'll be rather, uh, uh, rather a catastrophe to say they put the wrong key in, you see. Uh, and the firm wouldn't be, uh, the Cessna people wouldn't be responsible for that, would they? Well now, we got up and, uh, were attacked as usual by these big birds you know they don't like people in, uh, going in for their airspace so um, we came down midday and landed at a little uh, restaurant right out in the Everglades miles from anywhere and uh, turned the motor off again and in the moment where we, where we turned the motor off I thought oh we should go again or we're going to have to spend the rest of our lives here, right in the wilderness of the, uh, the Everglades. We came out after having a, a nice little lunch, and uh, the same problem presented itself. The key went in, but it wouldn't turn round. And uh, so we fiddled, and we fiddled, all for a good half an hour. And suddenly, quite suddenly, for no reason rhyme or any, anything we could find out, the starter went, so off we went again into the air the second time hoping the motor wouldn't soar while we were just uh, leaving the ground. Uh, you must have a key, you see, that fits. That's why, what I'm getting at. And chance is not a good uh, uh, substitute for the right profile. You must have the right profile on the key and the right thickness on the key to do the little job. Uh, chance won't work there. Now. The key served us well, this wrong key really, served us well and we went and had a look right over the Everglades and came back. Now the elegant way to do it is with the right key. But the profile on a key is so worked out and so planned that you can make a master key out of it and open say 10 locks with one key if you know what the master key plan is but the thing about the key that I want to get over to you this evening is that it's certainly not a product of chaos or chance it's worked out very carefully every bump and wrinkle on that key is thought through very carefully get it right now all molecules uh, which contain uh, which contain calories in them are like that they can be opened by a master key or if you haven't got a key and you desperately want the calories out of it you can burn them and if you burn them well you get out your calories but it's not considered a very elegant way of doing it the most elegant way of doing it is to put the right key in with the right bumps and wrinkles in it and then you'll be all right. Now, there are in uh, nature um, certain types of key which, fits, which fit certain types of substances. Uh, perhaps you put the second one in, Beate, would you? Thank you. Uh, if you have an ester, that is a combination between an acid and an alcohol, okay? That's called an ester. And there are certain types of ester 
which are present in food, which need to be opened in order to get the cavities out. Now, the keys which do that will open most esters. They're sort of master keys for esters. And if you get the right one, then it'll open half a dozen esters and get out the calories uh, in them. All biology contains the master keys for uh, opening a whole series of chemical substances which have a certain set type of key to open them. The key which opens them is called the uh, enzyme and the molecule which is opened is called the substrate. And the whole of biology is built up on this basis. The opening of substrates by enzyme keys. And they are highly specific. Their structure is fairly well known today. Many have been worked out. Now let's just have a look at some of them. The enzymes known as esterases will open all the esters the enzymes known as pectases will open pectins. And the, esters, the enzymes known as lipases will open all the glycerides or the fats. So you've got a scheme there worked out like a lockmaker makes for opening a master key for various forms of locks which comply to various systems so that they can be opened by any key which fits in with the profile that they require. Then there's the cholesterinases, which are highly important in biology, and they open all the acetylcholines, and acetylcholines are of course vital for the nervous system. Then there's the lactases, which will open the molecules uh, which are of the lactose or milk sugar types. Then there's the renin, which will go for the casein and other proteins. And then there's the pepsins, which uh, will open the proteins which fit that molecule. Then there's the trypsin, which will open also proteins, but under slightly different conditions. Then there's the ureases, which will open the molecules which have a urea structure in them, the NH2CO, NH2 type of molecule. And there's the arginases, which will open the arginine type of molecules, and the catalases, which will break down the H2O2 and bring it out to oxygen and water. Now, when you put a dose of food in your mouth, it's slightly alkaline, and you have in your mouth, in the saliva, a number of substances which will start to open the molecules of the food you put in, uh, which will um, uh, liberate the energy which the organism is dependent on for its total function. Uh, when you've chewed it in your mouth, when you're uh, going to communion, the Lord's Supper, and you put the wafer on your tongue, if you're very observant, I don't think you ought to think, you know, when you're going to the communion, that you ought to do this experiment with much consciousness. 
that it's useful to note in the, under, in the subconscious, you'll find that the wafer gets sweet. And that's due to the opening of the molecule of starch to uh, produce sugars which are soluble and pass through the uh, network of arteries and veins underneath the tongue. So you then start to open a whole row of uh, molecules of all these types here in your mouth when you swallow your food. Now after you've done that and you chew all of you, you chew 39 times as grandmother told you to do, and you start the process of opening up those molecules with the keys. Now the opening up of the molecules with the keys is an excellent way of showing that biology knows, in quotation marks, the key structure which is necessary to open the molecules which it needs to give its gold up, you see, the gold in the safe, the food molecule being the safe with the gold, the golden calories which you need in it. Now when you've done that, you swallow it and it goes down to the stomach and there the conditions are absolutely different to what they are in the mouth, if you're a healthy sort of a person anyway. Uh, you go into a very low pH and uh, the trypsins and the pepsins start to work on the proteins in the acid pH and open those molecules with this specific key which will open them to get out the calories. Now when that's been churned around for a time, and you can often hear it, you know, after people have uh, had their meal, uh, you don't comment on it, of course, but you do hear it, and you, with satisfaction that the molecules are now being opened, and you're now getting the calories which you need so that you can think. Supply the, the thinking machine up top. Now when that's happened, and chewed up and you've got a nice... Uh, uh, cream in your stomach, then the pylorus will open itself and the whole thing contracts and is forced down the contents of the stomach into the small intestine and uh, there the pH is altered to a strongly alkaline and the second, the third lot of molecules which haven't been opened to deliver your uh, uh, calories which you need to drive the whole system starts to be opened but it takes three very set and well-known conditions in which to open those molecules with the key and lock mechanisms such as enzymes are and I don't think this is speculation it isn't you all know this don't you uh, it isn't speculation it's a well-known fact that the enzyme systems are lock and key mechanisms absolutely dependent upon structure and absolutely dependent on planning first that each bump on the profile is exactly right and if it isn't right the answer is you don't get any gold out there are no golden calories to make your hips thicker than they were but um, you just don't get the food you need to drive the system the system must have the fuel now, when you consider the working of, say, the machines that we make, take the car that you drove down uh, today, 
the molecules which supply the energy are molecules of uh, petroleum, hydrocarbons, and the only way you can get the calories out of them are with the primitive and crude method of a sparking plug. And that just burns the whole bag of tricks. And if the whole bag of tricks is burned, then of course you do get the expansion out, thank you, get the expansion out, but it's a very crude way of doing it, considering the way that we do it in our bodies, technically very crude, because it works at a very high temperature and you lose a lot of the calories that you want in your exhaust pipe, don't you? Because you can't use it all by expansion. So if you were of the uh, inclination to think that biology is crude compared with the high tech of a modern motor, revise your views. The hidden design of biology in opening molecules, quite specifically according to their structure, that's hidden in the structure of each bit of information that's contained in, in biology. And uh, if that's the case, then think this. If a key in a lock mechanism, if the ideal way of making a key in a lock mechanism is by chance and error, do you think that a god who is omniscient would set about making all these keys and lock mechanisms which are so specific by the chance and the hit and miss method? I don't think you'd ever do that. So um, the uh, biological cell is infinitely, technically, more uh, advanced and say the crude things that we do by just simply burning everything in a cylinder and throwing out 80% of it or 70% of it through the exhaust pipe. And yet even a car is uh, designed with all the intelligence and perseverance that they have in Detroit, isn't it? Uh, if you were to say that that was by the hit and miss method, you know they, they'd have you lynched because uh, they don't like things being suggested by that, uh, like that. It's thought out very, very carefully, the remarkable thing being made that, that all biology knows the type of molecules which it can open with the lock and key mechanism, and it's highly specific. Now, if that's the case, I suggest this, that when biology got started, then uh, somebody must have put the information, I don't say consciously, into the biology that received it, but put the information there, how you do open an ester, and how you do open a protein, because it certainly knows how to do it. And it knows to do it, it knows to do it so that you've got a whole system of lock and key mechanisms there, what the Germans are happy to call a Dietrich system, there's a master key system. And the master key system is a good deal more complicated than the simple key for a simple lock, isn't it? You've got to have done a great deal of thought if you have a master key system, one key which will open all the locks. And that's just how all biology works. Now if that's the case, then I submit that uh, 
the uh, idea that biology just came about uh, by chance in a primeval soup just simply won't bear chemical scrutiny because a, a soup just doesn't know what the properties of an ester are in order to be able to open it easily as easily as you open a safe with a lock and key mechanism. Uh, think about that very carefully. These are all things you all know about. And I'm going to go in the second half of our uh, little talk tonight. I'm going to go into the development of the information system, retrieval and storage system, which is necessary to supply the information to the enzyme systems that the enzymes are made right. Because if we know how that information system is made, we know today that it can't be made on the chance and hit and miss method and then separated out by natural selection. There's good scientific reasons to show that that's not the method to make an information storage and retrieval system of the complexity which our information system of retrieval and storage of information shows. It uh, just simply won't wash chemically, and I'll tell you in the second half of our little talk uh, the night, the information system, that is the genetic system, which decides how to make the profile of the keys and make them right every time. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. More of The Origin of Life by Dr. A.E. Wilder Smith. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select.
Hello, my name is Joel Osteen, and I want to tell you about my latest book. Every day is Friday. I really don't know why I wrote this one, though. I was trying to come up with some ideas, and it turns out I don't have any. So that's when I started thinking of things people really liked. I was thinking of all sorts of stuff, but none of the things I was thinking were really working. My first title was "Every Day Is Marshmallow Covered Rainbows," but my mama told me it stunk. And then I had one of those ideas because somebody on the TV said they like Friday. I mean, what's not to like about Friday? There's a party every night. If your boss isn't all strict and stuff, you can be casual at work. And they's always having that 25 cent wing night down at Bubba Wings on Tuesdays. Turns out there are some people who don't seem to like the whole every day is Friday thing and have made some not so nice remarks. They keep on saying things like, "But Saturday is so much better. With every day being Friday, I don't ever get to sleep in or have a day off." Well, we here at Lakewood have a name for these kinds of people, and they are close-minded haters. Hey, that's my line. Uh, security, get this crazy person out of here. I'll show you who's crazy. Everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical somehow. All you have to do is order it online at Gillespie.coffee, and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Ah. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G I L L E S P I E dot coffee. Rex out. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally. Hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code. For additional savings, again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. 
Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that evolutionary theory is a false narrative in philosophy and speculation rather than science, because it ain't science. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Made at 24 95 a month from there master gunner at 49.95 a month and then quartermaster 99.95 a month joining our crew is a great way to support us if you would like to uh, become a patron on patreon click on the become a patron button if you would like to uh, uh, make a one-time contribution click on the donate button and if you'd like to support us the traditional way you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here again is Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith and his lecture titled, The Origin of Life. So the problem, the second part this evening is information storage and retrieval. Now there's an enormous movement going on in Europe and here in America to convince people that information, conceptual information, say the information required to make the right key with the right profile, can arise by chance. All channels, Claude Shannon's theory, the bits of information, that he invented and which have been so successful in propagating information theory throughout all society, our computer system wouldn't be possible without information storage and retrieval at a highly sophisticated level. So we're going to have a look at that, but remember this, that all that glitters isn't gold. And the information bit of information, which means a binary digit, a bit is a binary digit, is a measurement of the surprise effect when you add to two letters a third letter to make a three letter word. And the amount of surprise is the amount of information according to Shannon. Now let me make that clear because I see that's always clear as mud to many of the dear faces in front of me. Uh, you see, the idea in biology today is if you take the letters which make up the words of the genetic code, if you take those and throw them together just by chance, you can get out words with for us a meaning. Say for example you throw words round in a hat, letters round in a hat like containing C, A and T. And out comes by chance C, A, T. People say, boys, I've made by chance 
pussy cat, you say, C-A-T. And you'll find in the biological textbooks all the systems which you find in the genetic code. Perhaps you turn it on, would you? Thank you. The, all the systems in the genetic code, that the letters which turn up by chance have meaning. Now look, we must analyze this and you have to pay attention here because this is, this is quite hard and it goes against the grain, what I've got to say now. If you produce by chance, the, the, that one first, yes, thank you. If you produce by chance, thank you. If you produce by chance, by throwing the letters round in the supercentrifuge, C, T, and A, and if you produce the sequence C, A, T, people say, well, okay, I can produce the letters G, C, G, which say are necessary to produce a protein in the genetical code. Now, is that right? It isn't. You don't produce any meaning by fiddling around and by chance producing sequences. If you, for example, produce CAT by chance and show it the CAT to a Chinese who doesn't speak any English at all, he says, yes, that's CAT and that's it. It doesn't mean anything to him because he doesn't know. But if you show it to a person who's been brought up in an English-speaking world, you show him C-A-T, doesn't matter how it's produced, and he'll say, yes, that means pussy, won't he? I don't seem to have convinced you, you know. Either you're asleep, or uh, I'm just incapable of getting over my thoughts. Uh, You see, if we see C-A-T, no matter how it's produced, we've been brought up and taught in everyday language that C-A-T means pussy. But the Chinese hasn't. So if you produce any sequence of letters, be they genetic sequences, or be they sequences of the ordinary letters of our language, doesn't mean anything you put in the meaning afterwards according to, and it's so subtle that you don't notice it. But you ask a Chinese who doesn't know, or say a Turk, who doesn't know any English at all, what C-A-T means, and you look at you blank. You know, you can do that blank look in their eyes that they haven't understood you, such as I can see just now in front of me. <laughs> now, this is absolutely vital. Uh, because you'll find the textbooks full of this error that letters produced by chance in the genetic code have the meaning that they have in our present genetic code. The point is that they don't. The meaning is put on afterwards, after the sequence has been built, by the person who invented the code or by the person who uses the code. Okay? Now that's a, a simple elementary truth. But you'll find people go all through the genetic code and produce GCG. Perhaps you put the next one on there, would you? They produce GCG and GAC and all that and say, well, that means the sequence which we have in biology. The point is it means nothing. Nothing at all. 
except the meaning is put there afterwards by the inventor of the code or by the user of the code then it's okay now is there anybody who hasn't understood that because I can't proceed until you have if you don't you see the, the gear wheels will get jammed and you'll shriek in pain if I, if I go on and you haven't understood me. Now how does the biological system then store meaning? Well first of all it's got to get meaning and you don't make meaning by chance. You get meaning from the inventors of codes or the users of codes, not before. If you have to learn another, other languages, especially if you have to lecture in other languages, uh, you rapidly learn this, but people who are monolingual can't grasp this fact. And you'll find in uh, the textbooks which issue from Freiburg in Germany, from a, a good friend of mine there who's an atheist, uh, they're just simply full of that. It doesn't matter how you produce C-A-T, it means pussy. It doesn't. It means C-A-T and nothing else. Now let me make this really so clear that I shall hear the aha reaction come out of your, your sweet mouths. Yeah. If you take, this is the way that Claude Shannon developed his information theory. And it's vital because computers rule the world today and they're dependent on, on Claude Shannon. If you take, listen to me carefully, if you take uh, two letters of our alphabet and the first letter that you take and put by chance onto the paper is A, small a for Arthur, okay? And the second letter which you put there by uh, chance is Q. Q. Okay? Now, is there any surprise effect if I put after the A, Q? Is there any surprise effect if I put a U after it? The answer is there's no information there at all because it's a law of the English language that Q is always followed by a U always so you're not producing anything new Shannon's binary digit, the bit is a measure in any language and it's different from each language of the surprise effect which the addition of a third letter to two existing letters sequences means it has nothing to do with the concept of, say, cat, which is pussy. Okay? Nothing to do with that at all. But if you take C-A and then by chance put in T, that is something new because A isn't always followed by T. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. But the measure of information, a bit of information, has nothing to do with the measure of a new concept whatsoever. So that if you take a series of letters typed out by monkeys on a typewriter entirely by chance, because the addition 
of one letter to two previous letters in a sequence. Because that addition is new, the informational bits of a whole series of sequences, according to Shannon, is much higher than say if I were to take the same letters and write a text out of those same letters using the, the same ones. I would, when I did it, if you measured it, the information in it by Ch Shannon's method, the information would be less because chance gives surprises. So Shannon's information theory measures surprise effect. Now, how does the, the, the body in biology do it? Well, first of all, you've got to have a concept. Now, I want a, a concept, and the concepts that I have in my mind are not in any language, you know. They're just pictures of concepts in my mind. I don't think in any language. But I can put the concepts in my mind if I know a language, into that language. But I don't produce by producing the language, the concept. Now, shall we take a concept like, uh, I'm in dire trouble, and I want to get some help. Now, you know what a pilot does in a plane if he wants help, quick. He sends through his radio the idea of mayday, doesn't he? You know what mayday means. It's the French for M apostrophe A-I-D-E-Z and it means help me, mayday. Of course, we think it was just mayday, you know, at the beginning of May, and that's what we think, but uh, it isn't that really at all. But the concept is, come, help me, I'm in, no, I'm in need. Now, if that's the case, that is an idea, a concept, which you're wanting to put down on paper. How would you do it? Well, if you've studied codes at all, the Morse code will come into your mind, won't it, immediately. And you'll think of S-O-S, which was originally Save Our Souls, okay? You know, I'm in dire need. So we put it S-O-S. Now, Mr. Morse, thought that that wasn't a very good way of doing things. You couldn't send S-O-S out through those primitive radios, you know, with their tapper keys and all the rest of it. So what you did was you translated the S into the Morse code, which was dot, dot, dot. And then you translated the O into the Morse code, which was dash, dash, dash. Okay? Now, um, if you uh, tap that out, dot, 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 dash, 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 dot, 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 you'd have half a dozen planes around you in five minutes, you see, to try and help you when you're up in the air. Now, how could you conserve that concept without any paper? Well, you could use it. You could use the method used by the ancient Incas. They had no paper and they didn't write literature such as we do. But they had a very exact system of keeping accounts. All governments
do that to know how much you owe, you see. And then they'll put it down in their little code and send you along a little note through the mail, and you're supposed then to pay them. And they keep exact accounts for that. If you have a need, you see, mother is the necessity is the mother of invention. They did it, and so did the Incas. They knew exactly who married whom, and how much corn you owed the hierarchy which governed you. And they did it by this system of coding, and they had, behind their door, the headman, had some thin, long ropes made from pampas grass. And uh, he tied into those ropes knots, and he would read the knots by passing his fingers over them. Okay? Or he'd look at them with his eyes. And then he'd read where the knots were. Now if you took some of those Inca ropes and you translated them to the present time and you put on the first rope there on, the, on your left hand side up on the board there three knots, S, 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 that's right. Then you put in a double knot, a double knot, a double knot and then S, S, S. And you hold it up to somebody who knows the code they said, oh, he's, he's got stomachache. There's something wrong with him. He's asking for aid. He wants a dose of something or another to, to get him straight again. He'd understand you immediately just by looking at it. Or, if it was dark, they could run their fingers over it, run their fingers over it, and they'd feel knot, 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 double knot, double knot, double knot, not, not, not. Aha, he's got bellyache. Okay? <laughs> They'd know the message which was stored. Now that's called retrieving information which was stored. Okay? Now you notice this, that the letters themselves, the knots, don't mean anything. What does hide the meaning? Are you asleep? You're not asleep. Well, you prove it to me. Uh, how, would you, uh, how would you say the meaning is stored so that you can retrieve it? Well, what, what, what builds the language there? Is it the letters to it or what? The agreement is that when you see the sequence of letters which in themselves don't mean anything. When you see the sequence, S, O, S, then we have an agreement that that sequence means Mede. Okay? And that's how languages are made up. But if you make the sequence by chance and don't have a, a language convention, that you don't have an agreement. It doesn't mean a mortal thing. But if you've put into the sequences by prearrangement that this sequence means that, if you take a system like this, it's infallible. You can't miss it. SOS dot 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 dash 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 dot 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 means come and help me, quick. That's the concept. All right? Now that's the system that biology uses for making the keys of the enzyme systems which govern 
the supply of energy which we have. All those profiles on the keys are stored in a code system which is prearranged. Perhaps you put the next one up, Beate. The next one, if you so kind. They're all stored there, but the the fact is this: that you don't make concepts. Thank you. You don't make concepts by chance. But if you do get a sequence out, when the sequence fits into a language convention, and the language convention is made up by agreeing on concepts, then you can store and retrieve information that way. The letters themselves don't mean anything. What does mean something is the sequence which you have and the agreement which you have that this sequence means that concept. But the idea that's going around today is that you can make a concept by chance. You can't because chance would never make an agreement on a language convention. So you've got to have two individuals who are conscious to make an agreement, this is the language convention which we're going to agree on. Okay? Now that applies to the genetic code. If you take the genetic code itself, I put a little diagram up there, you see? Uh, this is how it works. You have a long chain on the left-hand side and on the right-hand side. And the chain consists of, uh, well, as I've written it up there, you see, phosphate, desoxyribose, and phosphate, desoxyribose, and phosphate, desoxyribose, and phosphate, desoxyribose, until the cows come home. And then you have a long, long chain, phosphate, desoxyribose, phosphate, desoxyribose, and coupled to that chain, you have the uh, knots, which I put on the rope beforehand. The chain of DOR and PO4, DOR, PO4, is merely the rope. The rope doesn't hold any meaning. But what holds meaning is the sequence of meaningless knots on the rope. And the language convention which says, let this equal that. And that's a language convention. Now if you do that, you can store an enormous amount of information and recover it. And that's the information storage and uh, retrieval system on which the genetic system works. Now, listen, you've got to do some quite exact juggling with these things to get a lot of information on them. You think of all the keys and locks, the systems that I've talked about uh, this evening, and putting them into code form. Now, in writing, it's sometimes quite difficult, especially if you use two or three languages, to get an exact lock and key mechanism coded properly so that you can reproduce it at will. Now, the body has done that. The long chains consist of the genetic code. The ropes are phosphate, desoxyribose, which is a sugar, a five-ring sugar, 
phosphate desoxyribose fibrin sugar, phosphate desoxyribose, and then stuck onto them are these, these oblong bits there with an H in the middle which consist of the knots. Where you find G, which is guanine, a knot on that system, and where you find A, which is adenine, a simple organic base, and cytosine, which is a simple organic base too, you find G, A, C. That is the code for saying the next link to come in the protein we're synthesizing, the next link is aspartic acid. We know this, this has been found out, and uh, just by experiment. So the body reflects the system of a convention, let this equal that. Let C-A-T equals pussy. C-A-T doesn't mean, doesn't look like a cat at all. But by our language convention, we know that C-A-T in the English language means pussy. Okay? But it's an axiom which we use, and an axiom which functions quite well, doesn't it? Now in the body, it functions just as well. For wherever you get G, guanine, G, guanine, C, they're the next link in the chain to be built up. Is, uh, is glycine. That's the next one to be put in. That is simply a convention. Now if you think, ladies and gentlemen, that conventions are made by putting cards on a, in a bowl and shuffling them and taking them out at random. If you think the conventions are made like that, you're interested in surprises, because they're not. Languages have very strict conventions, and one of the great conventions in life, in biology, is that of the genetic code. The knots don't mean anything, but if you put them in this order, they mean that. It's simply a convention. That is, a convention is a concept, isn't it? So you've got behind the very system on which our bodies and all biology exists, a convention, an, a language convention. If you think that's a simple soup, you know, then I'm afraid I can't help you. I'll ask God to help you. But if he doesn't enlighten your darkness, he won't. Uh, he won't profit by what I say. Because he took a long time to enlighten my darkness on those points. Till I saw that all life is built up on a system of conventions and language conventions. Now you've asked me to do something quite difficult tonight. So I'm going to do it now. Will you take a deep breath? and get that oxyhemoglobin going around the body so that you've got uh, a little bit of reserve here. You know, before a whale goes down, it has to breathe 10 minutes to get its oxyhemoglobin and its myohemoglobin uh, well oxidized up so that it can go down then as far as it wants. Now, look, Fox and Miller said years ago they'd found the secret of life. And it was 
inorganic and uh, had nothing to do with an intelligent designer. What they did was on the back of these beautiful little things which your Mr. Hazen, uh, Dr. Hazen did, uh, you've all had these haven't you? Uh, there's an experiment there of Fox and Miller on the back. Just turn it up if your memory is a bit, bit weak. Uh, you'll find there a little uh, bulb, nice bit of glass blowing. I used to be a glass blower, you know. During the war, when we hadn't got the glass blowers, I had to make my own apparatus. And in that bulb on there, they had an arrangement for a sparking plug. And they passed over that sparking plug with a little pump, some ammonia, NH3 for the initiated, and uh, methane, CH4, again for the initiate, initiated, and uh, water, H2O, for those who know. And passing this mixture over this with a little pump, uh, and then condensing it in a trap at the bottom, produced what we used to call, in the days when we were learning chemistry, a gunk. You know what a gunk is, don't you? Is anybody doesn't understand the language conventions that I'm using? You do. Uh, can I take that as said? Uh, and in this gunk, he found one or two amino acids. CH3, CH, NH2, COOH, amino acid. And that is one of the acids which is present in all life. There are 20, about 20 amino acids which make up the structure of the body. Okay? So he said, boys, we've got out the basic substances of which life is made. Just add a few billions of years and they'll surely produce life. It was, again, you see, a reversion to philosophy rather to an experiment. Now, I will say this because I've had it repeated to me when I'm doing radio shows, you know, and call-in uh, shows, that in this gunk they did find the proteins which are necessary for life to ride upon. Now, that is not true. That is a direct untruth propagated by wishful thinking. It will happen if you let it go long enough. It won't. And we know why. The reason is this, that all life is made up of stereoisomers. Now you all know what stereoisomers are, don't you? It's quite simple. Don't think that I'm trying to flummox you or anything like that. You know what flummox means, don't you? It's an old English expression which I should think would have gone through the Pilgrim Fathers to you down today. Uh, that is to confuse you. Uh, life is made up of locks and key mechanisms that fit one another like hands fit gloves such as we've been talking about earlier this, morning, this afternoon like hands fitting gloves now I wonder if I'm just simply 
summing you up whether you can take this one the entropy status of a left hand you know what an entropy status is don't you don't you well let me put it more simple the entropy status that was the same of the left hand is exactly identical with the entropy status of a right hand now in chemistry if you're making new substances the substance you will get out is always the substance which gives off as much energy and order as it can so that your entropy status is as high as it can be your end product in any system of synthesis is always the entropy status which is highest because then you lose most order you know that if you leave your kitchen to the children don't you long enough in the end you won't be able to get in the kitchen you know that don't you I once stayed in a house when I was lecturing on uh, complex stereochemistry in London where really although there were no kids in the house you couldn't get in the kitchen because the dishes literally and the washing up for the last century was on the floor and uh, the entropy status therefore was exceedingly high now where Fox and Miller have deceived the public for 20 years has been in that they said that the left-handed molecules of amino acids which are necessary for viable life to occur are produced 100% pure so that you get a perfect fit of the left hand into the left-handed glove now that is not true you always get just as much left hand produced as you do right now the technical term for that if you want to imp impress people with whom you're speaking you know it's really necessary to do that for public relations sake uh, if you want to do that ladies and gentlemen uh, you know the correct term for the 50% mixture of left-handed and right-handed with which biology can do nothing it's called a racimate and all organic chemistry no matter what you're talking about if you make it by these methods that Fox Miller talked about will not produce 100% of the left-handed glove or the left-handed hand which you need and which is necessary so that, so that the biological molecules can fit very close together and react with one another they can't do it because if you put or try to put a left-handed hand into a right-handed glove you know you're doing it in the dark and you can't see what you're doing you have quite a tussle don't you because uh, sometimes especially if it's a shoe a right-handed foot going into a left-handed shoe you know you get into all sorts of tangles don't you because it won't go in the if you put a round peg into a square hole in the end you can't even get a square peg into a square hole because it's stuck with the round one in there so that it's not possible to say that it has any reference 
any relevance at all, in the least, to the origin of life. And yet it's taught all our kids, you know, is a fact that life will arise if you leave it long enough to the vagaries of chemistry. You won't, because you'll get just as many round pegs produced to go into square holes as you have molecules to play around with, and they'll block one another. It's been tried, it's been done for a hundred years, and uh, nobody's ever succeeded in getting anything out of that. You've got to separate the left ones from the right ones in order to get the fit of all these T's and molecules and enzymes that I've been talking to you about. And if you can do that, well and good. But how do you do it? Well, the technical way of doing it is known as, I've made kilo kilograms this way, uh, of the left-handed molecules which I wanted for synthetic purposes. The right way to do it is to combine the left-handed molecules in the mixture of left-handed and right-handed ones with another substance so that you introduce between the left-handed molecule and the right-handed molecule an entropy difference. That's known as optical resolution for those that uh, know their way about. You can do it, but it's dependent upon the information in the genetic code that you can do it. Because the genetic code produces left-handed brucine, which is a derivative like strychnine. And if you combine it with a left-handed molecule, you get out LL and LD. And the entropy status between the two is different. You can separate them. One's crystalline and one isn't. It's quite easy to separate. But you've got to introduce the entropy difference in order to do it. Now, to say that happens by chance is just the purest and shameless effrontery. Because it flies in the face of anybody who knows his way around. You can't do it. If you want to do it, you put in information. And information will do the separation and make the entropy difference uh, great enough so that you can separate the two molecules. Now, Fox and Miller has abs Fox and Miller himself, Fox is a quite a good chemist. He knows these things. And he says, oh, if you leave them long enough, they'll do it for you. You know, you can't do that sort of thing. You can't fly in the face of the well-known laws of chemistry and of physics to do that sort of thing. It's... Uh, you would have thought the Christians, you know, would have stood up as a man and said, look, we're not going to have our kids taught bunkum and piffle like this because it isn't scientific. You do understand my language, don't you? I'm most, I'm most concerned that you do really get to know how hot a chemist who's been 50 years in his job gets when he hears this being passed off on poor students who haven't had time to look around and see what the answers are because they don't find them in any of the textbooks. That's the problem. But you see, if you mix up people's intelligence by filling them up with 
nonsense of this sort. In the end, what will happen is that the brain, which is like a coffee machine, will go wrong. And Paul says, your thinking will become futile. And I think it's very bad to teach kids wrong ways of thought. It's like taking a coffee mill and putting into it coffee beans. Coffee beans are digestible, you know. And you get a nice cup of coffee and all the refreshment that comes from the aroma of a nice cup of coffee, can't you? But if you put in with your coffee beans, two or three ball bearings, steel ones, you know, <laughs> um, they'll go through the motions of being ground, but in doing so, they'll wreck the machine and never grind coffee beans again. And the brain is the coffee mill. And you put in a few facts like this, which are non-facts. And you know, the whole machine gets confused and futile in its thinking. Now, do you think it's right that it should be go on at our expense? That's the shamelessness of the whole system. The taxpayer pays his money to have his kids made incapable of sensible thought. His thought becomes futile because he's put in indigestible facts like this here on the back of the paper uh, into the coffee mill and in the end the boys can't find their way out because they don't know how to think. Now that's a very, very serious thing for a nation which is dependent upon technology such as you are. You must think straight in all matters. Okay, now let's get on to something else. Have I hurt anybody? I hope I haven't. Uh, you see, you get the highest mathematics brought in to say, ah, well, uh, you don't know any mathematics. Because you do realize that if you let a reaction go long enough for infinite amounts of time, everything will happen, including life will arise. That is the mathematics of the probability law, isn't it? Now, do you know, it was just on that theory alone that evangelical Christianity lost its hold entirely on the academic world. Just on that alone. You know, the famous debate at Oxford between Wilberforce and T.H. Huxley, when Darwin said it could all have happened in some little quiet pond somewhere in the world and over millions of years. Everybody said, well, look, if that's the case, then there's no proof of the existence of God. Of course, all the German philosophers were after this immediately. There's no proof of the existence of God. That just suited them down to the ground. Because chance could have done it. And if chance could have done it, then poor old Apostle Paul, he was all wrong, wasn't he, in Romans 1, 19-21 when he said the whole of creation speaks of the deity and power of God so that they are without excuse that because they didn't give thanks to God they became futile in their thinking. But you know, I often think that Christians have so often become futile in their thought. That is, they don't achieve anything by it. And if you do that, well, what's all this blood going up to the grey matter up here if you don't think uh, to produce a result of some sort or another? Okay. Let's leave that one then.
Now, I've explained here that it's the knots on the rope and their sequence which stores the information which don't make the information. The information is agreed to be put there from outside by language convention. We agreed on that, didn't we? Now look, if you look at all the bits of information we need to produce, say all the lock and key mechanisms we've been talking about, and all the information such as we've been talking about just now, it was calculated that by using a rope like that to do it and get all this information in it, you'd need a rope as long as from here to the moon and back again to get all the sequences you need to store that amount of bits of information. How is it that the biology, your biology, the millions of billions of cells that you've got in you, can store that amount of information on sequences? It's only recently come out, you know, and you won't find it in any textbook. Well, it's done biology, in biology, by the stupendous fact that the storage of information is not merely sequential in the genetic code. That is linear, one bit, one knot after another in one dimension on a line. It's not that. Biology can reduce these billions of bits of information to a molecule which is a few micrometers long on one sperm and one egg you get an infinite amount of information to build you how's it done? it's only recently been found out the biological information storage and retrieval system doesn't store just linearly one after another on a line. It stores, are you ready? It stores in three dimensions. That is one, one on the line and then above the line and then below the line. Our industries not reach that state of sophistication. Our industry can only do it in on the line one bit of information on the line, one after another. Biology does it in three dimensions, and it does it by storing linearly on the helix, linearly, but then it also stores on the spiral, that is in three dimensions, its information. Now it's very difficult to get at that chemically, because you've got to work with optically active molecules and understand them to do it. The point is this, that it wasn't done in three dimensions. No life could have started because the ropes would have been far too long to be accommodated on a sperm and on an egg. So you couldn't have got the life to start the natural selection to do the, to do the separation of the two types of molecules. You couldn't have done it. So you must have had it done by the concept of storing information 
in three dimensions. Now, when the experts on information theory get around to that and start to do their storage of information in three dimensions, then lots of new revelations will turn up to us and we shall know how it is that you and I, in all the variations in which we exist, no face, no two faces are alike, were stored on one sperm and one egg in three dimensions. When we get to that, and they see that God had done that long before they ever dreamed of such a system being possible, you see what a, a slap in the face it is for Almighty God to say he did it by chance. Chemistry says you can't do it because you can't even separate the left-handed molecule from the right-handed molecule by ordinary naturalistic processes. Can't be done. You've got to introduce the third dimension so that you get the helix out, which is in three dimensions to make possible the information storage and retrieval system on which we all depend. If you can do that and get it patented in time, you won't have to work anymore because this would reduce to all the, the size of the computers we send up on the satellites, it would reduce them to almost the size of a sperm. And think what that would happen. Poor old Russians with their portmanteau cases coming along and their information storage and retrievals, which are so heavy that they can't get them into the air, you see, can't get them up into space, so heavy. But if you could reduce it to the size of a sperm and an egg, all the information you need. You think what a, what a revelation that would be uh, in industry today. Amen. Mm-mm-mm. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Iyer Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.